0: Morning, we on? All right. Well, it's good to see so many of you here when so many of the young families and others are out at the lake. But uh, before we get started on what might be called a frontal assault on male passivity, let me just say that if the guys here today feel some pain in their toes, I might quote uh, what was considered to be a disingenuous statement by a former president that. I feel your pain, or I might rather say, I feel the same pain, Uh, if you hear something today from God's word that strikes close to home, please understand that I am challenged as well. This is as much an exhortation to me as it is to you. Last month in our talk about what is a man, we took a, a short, brief introduction. A introductory look at male passivity uh, and uh, suggested some very basic steps to counter that trend in males today. And I commented at that time that passivity seems to be a plague spreading among modern males. But from where did this contagion come? Is it really just a consequence of our postmodern culture Maybe Darwinism, is it the part of evolution or devolution of man? If you look at the quote at the top of your study sheet from Aristotle, it would imply that this tendency of man in life has been around since before the time of Christ. That's quite true that our culture and other factors have greatly fostered and encouraged passivity in males, But if we look closer, we cannot lay the blame wholly on modern society because male passivity actually began in the garden. Genesis 2 tells us that Adam is the one who received a direct command concerning the forbidden fruit. He was the one to whom the command was given. He bears the responsibility. But in Genesis 3, we are told that Eve Ate the fruit, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So Adam was simply hanging during the fall of man, and his passivity led to the corruption of the entire human race. Adam's passivity failed uh, to stand up to the serpent and protect his wife from its temptations. As inheritors of Adam's sinful nature, we can all fall into passivity, failing to work and lead as we should. So we can see that passivity is not just a modern trend of playing video games in your parents' basement beyond the age of majority. It goes back to the fall. And because of his passivity, the fall is called the sin of Adam, not the sin of Eve. The counter to passive Adam is active Jesus. Jesus took the initiative and confronted the sin of Adam that he should have opposed. Decisive, Jesus left his kingdom and took the form of a man to crush the sin that passive Adam embraced. Passive men blame others for their decisions, just like Adam. Men who denounce passivity, on the other hand, through the active spirit of Jesus Christ, understand that they are sinners, deserving of death, and are quick to accept responsibility. Now, passivity has become such a problem that even among non Christian sources, both male and female, they're taking notice. Uh, when I Googled male passivity, I came across a website with the prestigious title Miss, M-I-S-S, Date Doctor. Okay, and I read enough to know that this is not a source exuding biblical wisdom, but some of the date doctor's statements were surprising in our woke world. She said this, passivity in relationships prevents closeness. In a relationship, if you don't play an active role, you will never be able to share who you truly are with your partner. Your partner would find it difficult to connect with you. Passivity can breed a great deal of anonymity, regardless of how nice and cooperative you appear. It shows that you are being lazy with the relationship by leaving everything to your partner. Passivity can make your partner feel emotionally tired, which can lead to a gradual increment of resentment toward you. She asked, Why is is being a passive man bad? Passivity is becoming common in men. Men are becoming more passive for a multitude of reasons, and this has resulted in a great deal of sadness, depression, and self-doubt, which affects men's romantic and personal lives. Masculinity is active, innovative, and protective, all of which are the polar opposites of passiveness. These are the qualities women admire in men. Women naturally love a man who can take charge of the situations around him. Women want a man who can take ownership of things and also trust their gut without external help. Now, the date doctor gets some things right here, but she sets a bar higher than I can jump because I know I cannot be a man, the man that I should be, without external help, without God's help. I do not recommend that you go looking for advice from these worldly sources on the issue of passivity. What you will find is that the solution of the male influencers is simply to be a man, which, after translations, means get out of the basement, get aggressive, go to the local meat martin, the singles bars, drink hard, and conquer all the women within eyeshot. This, we know, is not the biblical man, nor is it wise. Being a macho man is self-destructive in so many ways. God gave us this thing called STDs. It could, ought to be a disincentive, but not all males think with their head, their brains apparently being elsewhere. The point I'm trying to make here is that toxic passivity has become so prevalent that even many within the world see it as a problem. However, the world does not have a remedy. So our discussion today about passivity in males will take us on the continuum pass the single male into matrimony. Now, as, as a precursor here, marriage is a significant milestone in life. Once passed, can wake one up to reality. It was not until I was married or home from her honeymoon that the light went on for me, that I could no longer just continue on as a student relying upon my parents. I had to take responsibility for my wife as well. How much better it would have been if I caught that a little bit earlier. But my experience is not universal. I'm so thankful that God allowed me to see this reality, albeit so late. But for some, the wedding does not necessarily cure the disease. In fact, if not healed, this contagious menace can be passed on by examples to sons. Now, what are some of the causes of passivity? The men in uh, this building today probably do not look like the 30-somethings who rarely crawl out of mommy's basement. As we talk about it, though, we should all recognize that we can all suffer from passivity in other, less evident ways. In general, biblical manhood includes active, intentional work and leadership. Going back to the beginning, Genesis 2 says, The Lord God took the man... Put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This verse portrays man's general role. The word work means to be active. The word keep means to be responsible for what God entrusts. This role extends to actively work and lead in families, in jobs, in church, and within the society. For men, this is God's general best. However, because of sin... Men are portrayed and often accept the roles as either useful idiots only for reproduction on the one hand or high octane testosterone brutes, not the humble yet active hardworking leaders beckoned by the Bible. The brute is obvious as a problem. The former passive malady is a bit more subtle. So beyond our natural inclinations, as in sin nature, it may be helpful to understand some of the attitudes and activities that tempt us to lean into passivity. First is just good old school laziness. It's easier to relax than to take the extra effort required to lead in anything. Then not business, but busyness. We add so many good activities that we think there are simply no time for the best, like selecting career over family. Entertainment, our obsession with titillating images from new technologies, creates a subtle yet powerful addiction which saps our mental and moral vigor required to actively lead in the areas to which God has called us. How about just old-fashioned aimlessness? We wander through life in day-to-day routine because we have never prayed or don't pray consistently and thought through God's purposes and specific ways that He can use us. And finally, just fear. When we think about how people react to our attempts and failures, that neuters or paralyzes us into inaction. Now... Some men are handsome, some men have a face only a mother could love, (laughs) but there's no more unattractive male than the man of passivity. This is a man who lives life by watching it pass by instead of taking action, unable to seize the opportunity that God provides. If he ever ends up married yet unrepentant, he will be a pariah to his wife. So in wrapping up his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul set out the standard. He said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It's 1 Corinthians 16. If a male is passive about pursuing a woman for a relationship, that's an omen, a warning sign that he's not ready to take responsibility for the relationship. He's not ready to make hard decisions. Without a true change, It is the passive male who thinks he demonstrates his manhood by impregnating his girlfriend, who then discovers that he's not really a man at all after he abandons her to raise the child by herself. Before marriage, the passive male never seems to get the point of commitment. He may express his love in several ways, but the woman finds herself waiting and waiting and waiting, sometimes for years, and he never quite gets it. Some women sense he's getting close to a proposal, only to hear him suggest that they move in together just to test the waters. And we talked last month about how the facts are in. After decades of research on cohabitation, the social scientists are telling us that cohabitation increases the chances of heartache, divorce, and all kinds of social ills for not only the cohabitants, but also in the offspring, greatly. Let's be reminded, Romans 13 makes it clear, let us walk properly as in the daylight, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In place of the word sexual immorality, uh, the King James Bible uses the word chambering which seems to be an old-school word for shacking up. Now, the Bible is clear on this issue also in Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Certainly, adultery defiles the marriage bed, but sexual immorality or shacking up before marriage has the same effect. When the truth of the word of God and the facts of science are dismissed by a male, a woman should see red, as in red flag. Suggest that he go figure it out and then come back or just simply grow up. If she clings or gives in to this guy, his passivity will be rewarded and she will suffer the consequences. If this guy's a Christian and somehow he works up the courage to pop the question, he may remain passive after the wedding. Instead of taking an active role of building up his wife with the word of God, he will leave that work to her pastor or spiritual authority, then feeling resentment down the road over his wife's greater respect for the pastor rather than him. Uh, The prospect prospect of marriage uh, can be a great change for a man, although it may not change the man, okay? The Apostle Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 7, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, including how to please his wife, so his interests are divided. Newly married man finds himself suddenly responsible for more than himself and his car, he, I mentioned how this realization hit me and was used by God to redirect the course of my life. And some have written how newlywed life tempts a man to self-pity and passivity. I suggest, uh, or I suppose the temptation is to long for the days after the wedding when no one else depended upon him when his life was more basic and simple. So if you had a relationship with a gal and you took her on a date, You took her home to her parents. But a married man has to protect her and provide for her 24-7, 365, and not just materially, but emotionally as well. Taking on that huge additional responsibility can intimidate a young man into wondering if he made a mistake. So he may want to keep a low profile, keep his head down in passivity, avoiding any responsibility in church, in his marriage, and certainly, who wants a screaming baby well, apparently some people around here do, but, but they're exceptional families. Thankfully, this was not my experience, at least not in total. I have one clear recollection of self-pity, but I was only allowed to keep it for about five minutes. I decided to interview for an employment with an organization that taught responsibility by immersion called the United States Marine Corps. It was at the end of my first day of my 12-week interview when I was standing at attention in formation with other shell-shocked young men in a brief and rare moment of inactivity, allowed only to stare at the shaved head in front of me. And I still recall briefly thinking to myself, just 12 hours ago, I held and kissed my wife goodbye. I got on the plane and left the... the comfort of the free world. What have I done to myself? It was palpable, you know. (laughs) However, they made sure I didn't stay in that state for very long. We got right to work with lots of other whirlwind of activity and responsibility, and it was sink or swim, do or die, uh, step up or be sent home with my tail between my legs. Now, I know I have had moments of self-pity since. But usually, when I've got my head on straight, I can see my way back to my call as a husband. The Bible calls husbands to love their wives how much? Only as much as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, was stripped, whipped, and crucified on the cross. That's all! Well, that means... I will forever pursue her, woo her, and study her sometimes inscrutable ways. I will consistently open God's word and pray for and with her. And when conflict invariably arises, I will do my best to respond with patience and sensitivity. That one hurts. When wrong, I will humbly seek forgiveness. Yeah, And with children, I'll get out of my easy chair to discipline them even when I'm tired. I'll bring up difficult conversations, make tough decisions. I will lead my family in serving within the church. I will resist my nature inherited from Adam to passively hide and point the finger at someone else. An Old Testament example of passivity and self-pity is Ahab. Who the Bible says is a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, were in 1 Kings 16, and so in rebellion he married a hot chick named Jezebel, who worshipped, and then he worshipped her god. Uh, but in 1 Kings 21, Ahab covets the vineyard of his neighbor Naboth and asks to buy it from him, and Naboth declines, says, "No, I'd like to keep it." Ahab responds by crumbling into self-pity and passivity. He goes into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth said to him. And it says there, and he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. In other words, the most powerful man of the land curled up in a ball and pouted because he didn't get his way. Some males know something of the temptation Ahab indulged, probably most of us. Self-pity is strangely seductive and can be equally paralyzing. It can keep a man from confessing his sins, from initiating reconciliation, from picking up the phone to make that difficult call, from attempting family devotions, from making difficult decisions, or taking hard next steps. His self-pity imprisons and disables him. Now, Ahab, knowing his wife and what she was capable of, should have stepped up to stop her, the good of Naboth and his family, for the good of the kingdom, for the good of his own soul, finally for the good of his own wife. A passive husband will inevitably enable and encourage the sins of his wife. Jezebel takes matters into her own hands, says to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. So Ahab's sorry silence Suggest he was all too glad to allow her to do the dirty deed. So or Jezebel forges his signature, orders Naboth a blameless man to be killed. While Ahab wallowed in self-pity, he nurtured Jezebel's iniquity. Had he had the conviction, the nerve, and honor to act as God called him to, he likely could have prevented all that unfolded in this, in this story. He could have saved a good man's life. Instead, he stayed in bed. Ahab proves that sometimes a man who does nothing is as harmful as a man who does the wrong thing. And there it says, as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth to take possession of it. Again, his passivity finds, he finds the strength to leave his bed and went to enjoy another man's field after his wicked wife hands it to him. So a good man really cannot keep his wife from sinning but he also will not lie on the couch while she does. A bad husband, especially a passive husband, will encourage her to sin all the more. So in the challenging moments of our own marriages, some men will lie down like Ahab, others will rise like the man we meet next. Contrast Ahab with Elijah, who at the risk of losing his life, confronts Ahab, not Jezebel. Please note, You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, Ahab. While other men watched and stayed silent, perhaps even participated in the injustice, Elijah refused the pull of passivity and embraced the cost of obedience. He would rather die than sit and watch God's law be so vandalized. Ahab's passivity would come back not just on his own head, but on the heads of all he loved, his sons, their sons, and his wife. It says, I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. So Ahab's judgment is a vivid, bloody picture of how unchecked sin ruins a household, when a husband grows passive, the whole family suffers. Perhaps not as greatly as Jezebel, but they will suffer none the nonetheless. Now, this story gives some hope to passive males. It says, When Ahab heard Elijah's word, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, fasted and lay in sackcloth, and went about in sorrow. Ahab, instead of lashing out in fury at the prophet, instead of retreating into more self-pity and passivity, he humbles himself in repentance. He does the hard thing. He sees his sin, hates his sin, and seeks the Lord's mercy. And because he humbled himself before God, God does not bring the disaster in his day, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. So there were consequences, to be sure. But something of his sin had died. The selfish, prideful passive husband became a humble one, at least for a little while, giving hope to self-pitying passive husbands of today. The passivity of Ahab, a king who mopes while his wife commits murder, who blatantly disregards, even mocks God's call to lead and love, who selfishly sets God's will below his own desires, is easy for us to hate. It's harder, however, to hate passivity in ourselves. Will we, as husbands in Christ, practice an intentional, costly, active love? Or just as men in general? Will we keep leading when it's inconvenient to lead? Will we receive the mercy of God, humble ourselves before him, lay down our pride and self-pity, and resist the enticing pull of passivity? The consequence of toxic passivity extends beyond the man and the woman. A man's passivity is the reason for many men failing in their roles as fathers. 1 Thessalonians 2 tells us that it, it is expected. It is the role of fathers to encourage, comfort, and exhort their own children. The passive father may be described as a dead man walking. He just sits and wanders around in hopes that his kids will turn out okay, and that mom will do the hard work of parenting, which he considers women's work. Irresponsible fatherhood starts off as passive masculinity. He will give excuses when called upon to disciple his own kids. Instead of taking responsibility, he might send his kids to church on Sunday without even investigating the doctrine of the church and Feeling justified or fulfilled that he's fulfilled his duty with the great sacrifice of actually driving to and dropping his wife and kids off at the church building. Why? He's such a great guy, he might actually go in and sit with them sometimes. Just don't expect him to stand up and actually sing those silly worship songs or hymns. He's too manly to show emotion in worship. Later, though, he wonders why his kids don't want to engage in the church. Another legitimate question here is whether some dispositions or temperaments are naturally passive. Well, we need to understand that the kind of passivity we're discussing today is not based upon one's personality, but on one's character. Despite what the macho man says, the opposite of passivity is, in this context, is not aggressiveness, but assertiveness. Being assertive has nothing to do with being caloric or sanguine in nature. Many people think that since they are aggressive and outgoing, they are automatically not passive. This is not true. You can be loud and very passive. On the contrary, you can be as mellow as a phlegmatic or a melancholic, but be the very antithesis of passivity. The key to being assertive and putting it into action is what we need to seek and that is not restricted to your temperament. It is an act of responsible manhood. A man is not meant to be passive. A man is meant to be engaged, caring, even assertive, decisive, and active. Now, some may ask, isn't being a nice guy enough? You know, I recall in high school trying to convince a young lady to go out with a friend of mine who had a particular facial appearance problem. She'd never met him, so when she asked about his appearance, I found myself saying, well, he's got a great personality. He's really a nice guy. Well, you can guess my efforts were in vain. But sometimes you and I are so enamored with somebody's humble presence and smile that we overlook other deficiencies more important than my friend's appearance. And so it is with young Christian men who are simply nice Not brutes nor braggarts. Remember, nobody ever said of Jesus, he's a really nice guy. Our job as biblical men should be as fighting soldiers, as competitive athletes, as sweating tillers of the soil for Christ. Not because we need to be special in the ways the world looks up to. We are called to be citizens of heaven and men of God, zealous for good works and for the glory of Christ. We need men who are unashamed and unapologetic about that goal above all others. This requires that we reclaim the positive ideal of the biblical man. A Philistine has crept in and infiltrated our ranks. He's a mere civilian, a spectator, and a consumer. He's only a shadow, a false ideal, a half-truth, a man described by what he should not be rather than by what he should be. What do we mean? At men's retreats and in, within Christendom at large, we are told over and over again that real men do not do porn. Real men do not put their career over their family. Real men do not bully or abuse women, and other many do not. And we should say amen to what real men are not, but what then is a man? To hate evil and to embrace what is good are two separate things. They are both essential, but neither is sufficient standing alone. How do we see manhood affects that for which we strive and do? One view sees manhood as an incurable illness of society to be managed, the other as a pillar on which to build our civilization. When the first view prevails, when we define a good man as one who is simply not a bad one, we create unheroic, housebroken men unfit to challenge the evils around them. While they're not abusive, neither are they valiant or strong, neither hot nor cold, just tepid, the kind that God likes to spit out of his mouth. This is literally a no man's land, a place that starves the vigor, the strength, and the nobility of manhood. Real men stand up for the oppressed. They exercise self-control. They protect and provide for women and children. They lead their homes. They take responsibility for their mistakes, and they're humble enough to die to themselves. Instead of just telling a man how not to use his testosterone, his ambition, and his strength, we must cast a vision for how he is to use them, redeemed and repurposed for the glory of God. I think it's on your sheet there, some things to remember. Manhood is much more than what it shouldn't be. In Christ, it, is not merely, it not merely lacks cowardice, it possesses courage. It not merely lacks bad views of God, but burns with biblical conviction. It doesn't merely lack a domineering spirit, but models godly leadership. It's not merely avoiding self-dependence, but commits to prayer for God's guidance and dependence upon him. It doesn't merely avoid habitual sin, but cultivates habitual repentance. It not merely says no to illicit desires, but says yes to the accountability of the church body. Godly men don't merely slay their own sins, but they walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because as Paul says in Galatians 5, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Likewise, we don't just avoid bad apples with our friends. We produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We don't just flee youthful lust, but we pursue faith, love, and righteousness with others. We don't... God gave his men so much more purpose than the bland taste of, he's a nice guy. So how can we conquer this passivity? How can godly leadership be instilled in us so that we fulfill our God-given roles? As Aristotle posed the question, what words can transform men whose life goal is to pursue sensual pleasure and avoid bodily pains? Well, I would suggest to you that the answer is not for the church to simply say, man up. Rather, we must be convinced by a vision of life and of the initiative and leadership so compelling and attractive that our affections are actually moved and we're motivated to lead in all the spheres in which God has placed us. The life of active leadership and initiative that God intends is the most joyful and fulfilling life that a man can lead. It starts with men first. The most essential and most effective attack on passivity to fight the sin in his heart by humbly surrendering to his Savior, Jesus Christ. Any other starting point will lead to frustration and defeat as he pursues the myth of the self made man. The Christ-made man knows he is broken and needs a Savior. Through Jesus, he can persist daily in fighting his passivity. One essential might be to have, and is, to have an active group of men who challenge your, your passivity. By following and communing with the assertive Jesus, he can, we can all grow, little by little, into masculine and assertive servants. Now, this is done through finding joy and fulfillment when we follow Christ. In submission to God and by the mercy of God, a man works out his own salvation with fear and trembling. So, we should resolve, first and foremost, to work and keep the garden of our hearts. The Bible makes clear that the man who intentionally devotes himself to God and his word will be blessed. One of the best known of such encouragements is in Psalm 1, which states, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, the Lion and Lamb translation for that, as you might have guessed, is read your Bible. Now, when Mike or others say that, I don't think we mean you cracked a Bible as a child. And we don't mean occasionally. We mean consistently, like daily. Guys, would you allow me to get a little more blunt? If when you hear read your Bible, is that just a statement that you hear in this building and then kind of gut chuckle? Or, dare I ask, is that something that you have the discipline that you are man enough to actually do? I started uh, giving my grandchildren a good study Bible for graduation. And in the note that I try to write along with it, I suggest that if they really care about others, which is a big deal to young people, and it ought to be, it ought to be for all of us, if they really care, they will come to understand that we cannot give what we do not possess. If God's word teaches what people need for eternal life, we must know it in order to pass it on. To know it, what must we do? Now, there's no required schedule. Even though the psalmist said, Oh God, you are my God, early will I seek you. That works for me, it may not work for you. But allow me to suggest that if you do not have a quiet time, fixed and regular in your schedule, you will likely become inconsistent, if not totally neglect, the read your Bible thing. Now, if you're working three jobs just to survive, just to meet basic necessities, I get it. But if not, and your response is, I'm just simply too busy to read my Bible consistently, Given the importance of this matter, may I be as bold to suggest that you are simply too busy? Third, a man should have joy in leading and sacrificially loving his wife. In context, Paul writes, He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, I'm often reminded that every time I set aside my cell phone or my entertainment to listen to and engage Christy, every time I put time and energy, and thought into how to please her. Every time I seek her out to be first to confess and ask forgiveness, I am doing myself much good. My marriage will be happier, and I know that happiness in relationships is a large part of general happiness in life. And this principle spills over in parenting and leading our children. The hard work of Deuteronomy 6, instructing kids diligently when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, will make you glad in the end because a wise son makes a glad father. The very hard work of disciplining our children consistently will often bring us joy. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will delight your heart, Proverbs 29. Again, intentionality is vital. In the Marine Corps, as a company commander and before that a platoon commander, I was responsible for the maintenance of our weapons, our gear, and the the upkeep of our quarters. But my main responsibility was to lead and train Marines. So we had a training schedule each day. Is your family any different? True, I know you're not going to train your kids in a military code of conduct or about basic unit tactics or the uniform code of military justice, but fathers are responsible to see that their children are trained to do justly, love, mercy, and walk humbly with their God. Do we love our children enough to do that? Fourth, we find this joy and fulfillment in taking initiative to serve within our church body. Even if you don't have a formal leadership position, Acts 2 point, paints a picture of the early church full of activity and service, and all had glad hearts. Every church has its faults, this one certainly does. But the Bible makes it clear that the house of God is a place of great joy and fulfillment. Both Paul and John served the churches they wrote to so that their own joy might be complete. Fifth, we find this joy and fulfillment in taking initiative in our work, in our jobs, even if we're not in management. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should work and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, that toil, I saw, is from the hand of God. It also brings joy In our job to know that hard work for God will bring us heavenly inheritance. Colossians 3 tells us to work heartily as unto the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Finally, we find this joy and fulfillment when we take initiative to spread the good news of Christ's amazing love and also to seek his best within our society. Jesus tells us that those who forsake their own good for the sake of the gospel will receive a hundredfold reward. He tells us that peacemakers will be blessed. God tells us in Isaiah 58 that he will bless those who do justice and serve the poor. Our world is desperately sick and in need of the gospel and its effect in every area of life. Men as the active, intentional leaders God intends us to be, you and I should be taking initiative to spread the gospel locally, nationally, and globally, and to shape our culture according to a Christian worldview. To do so should be our joy. Okay, in conclusion, and I mean it, let us all be persuaded and transformed by these encouragements from Scripture. Men, you and I, can overcome passivity in all its forms by taking God at his word. True joy and fulfillment are to be found in the active, intentional leadership to which he calls every one of us in every area of our lives. If you would, stand with me, and uh, we will recite together a passage from 2 Timothy 2. All right. together. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good service of Jesus. Jesus.